Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, live streaming, Zooming, and broadcasting on YouTube with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts, on the south side of Boston, now in our fifth month of Sheltering in Place. This is our 17th episode of Shelter and Solidarity, and we are diving into a very timely topic, the left and the election, looking at the state of democracy in the United States of America in the year 2020, looking towards the November election, question mark. We're gonna be joined today by two wonderful guests, one as our featured guest and one as a respondent that will be joining us later in the, in the broadcast. And we will be, as always, opening up the conversation to you, our live participants, um, about an hour in as we go about 90 minutes with these shows. Our first guest will be Victor Wallace. Victor Wallace um, is with us from Somerville, Massachusetts, I believe today. Victor is the author of three books, Democracy Denied, Five Lectures on US Politics, Red Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism, as well as his most recent book entitled Socialist Practice, History and Theories. Uh, Victor is uh, someone I've worked with for a long time. He has been the longtime managing editor until very recently of the journal Socialism and Democracy, one of the great sponsors of this program. About 20 minutes into the program, we will be joined by Medea Benjamin, who I'm sure many of you have heard of. Uh, she is the co-founder and organizer with Code Pink, an author of around a dozen or more books, a long, consistent critic and activist, in the United States political scene, particularly, but not only on issues related to US foreign policy. And we will be having her join us as a respondent and as a uh, speaker in her own right after we get uh, into a bit of a deep dive with Victor. So first, I just want to welcome Victor. And I do want to welcome Medea uh, before we turn to, turn to Victor first. Uh, Victor, thank you for being here. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to see you, comrade. Uh, Medea, it's great really to have you joining us on the show for the first time. We really appreciate you being here. Great to have you. Thank you so much. Look forward to the discussion. Terrific. All right. So let's dive in. Uh, you know, Victor, uh, in your book, Democracy Denied, which I cannot recommend enough for both the, 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 the novice and the scholar, veteran activist, uh, you give a concise but comprehensive view 
of the many ways that American democracy has never been all that democratic when right, it really right. comes to its practice. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, from the founding of the society all the way up to the present. You know, what do you see as the most important ways that democracy in the United States has in fact been denied? And I, and I welcome you here as we start the show and we do try to cultivate a deep dive. I encourage you to, to maybe flesh out the picture historically and then we will move uh, more to the contemporary moment and today. But Victor, what would you say, what are the, the ways that democracy in the United States has historically been denied? Well, that's a big question, but of course, uh, the basic uh, power system is the system of capitalism, which is itself an undemocratic system. And the thing about the United States is that unlike uh, other advanced capitalist countries, uh, its working class has had less of an effective political presence and it's in the other countries, uh, the political presence of the working class has enabled a greater degree of democracy, uh, which has been lacking in the United States. And so that there's a whole history of that. I mean, it, it's pretty well known, uh, at least to anyone, let's say, who has read, for example, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, uh, that the United States was never intended to be a democracy. The founding fathers did not like democracy. They said as, as much in so many words. In, the famous Federalist Paper Number 10. They were afraid of, and this is almost their own words, of a majority feeling its power and able to act in unison against, uh, against the property holders. Uh, so one way or another of blocking that possibility has been in effect all along. So you, you add to this uh, a number of other things. Obviously the slave economy and the divisions in the working class that resulted from the, uh, the racial division uh, that was created uh, on the basis of slavery, but also the whole institutional setup. Uh, in a way, I mean, speaking of the presidential election, we don't have a national election. We have 51 separate elections in 50 states in the District of Columbia, and this uh, shapes strategy. And, you know, for many years, this didn't attract that much notice, but more recently, and especially in the last election, it's come absolutely to the fore because you have the, the phenomenon, uh, which I don't know of in any other country, where a candidate who wins the most votes doesn't get the, the victory. So, so you have this uh, tremendous uh, confusion in a way. And added to that is, of course, another fairly well-known fact, although I don't think it's emphasized enough, certainly not in the media, that in this country, there's no constitutional guarantee of the right to vote. And this seems to be, have been carefully planned because every time there was a constitutional amendment to give the vote to uh, greater sectors of the population, the amendment was always put in, in negative terms. Nobody shall be denied the right to vote on the grounds of whatever, but that still leaves open the possibility of denying people the right to vote on some other pretext. And most recently, it's been uh, voter ID laws, or voter suppression of one form or another, uh, shutting down polling places. Now with Trump, a campaign against mail ballots. Uh, all this has been, uh, th these most recent efforts at voter suppression have been very well described by the journalist Greg Pallast. And I urge you to read his, his book, uh, how, how Trump Stole 2020. Uh, it builds on his earlier book, uh, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. So you have all these, these uh, institutional uh, obstacles 
to the franchise. And of course, the obstacles affect above all the poorest sectors of the population, which in this country, because of the legacy of slavery, have been disproportionately African-American, but to which you can also add the Latino and Native American uh, sectors of the population among these. And the, the techniques that, uh, that have been used to disenfranchise them in every possible way are mind boggling. Uh, another, one other aspect of the institutions that deserves mentioning, the very fact that it's a multiple election in all these separate states means that each state administers the, the vote, including the vote for national office. And as it happens, and this is typical, I don't know of any state in which it's not the case, the administrators of the election in that state are the party in power in that state. And so you have uh, obviously a conflict of interest and this is fundamental. And this played of course a huge part in, the, in determining the outcome in 2016. Uh, Pallast uh, describes this uh, very carefully uh, and in great detail. So in any case, uh, I wanna say in general though, that the major advances in progressive legislation in this country have all come as the result of social movements. So elections are something that we have to deal with uh, in part and largely as a, uh, as a defensive, with a defensive posture. Um, as actually it was uh, Suren in a recent conversation uh, said, it's a process of choosing our enemies uh, it, insofar as it's a choice between the Democrats and the Republicans. I, I do feel that it's important to have third party presence, even though the institutions are stacked in such a way as to make it disadvantageous, difficult for a third party to enter in because there's no, no, no phenomenon of ranked choice or instant runoff voting. But how, however, the fact that we have these 51 separate elections means that in some states where the contest between the two parties is uh, skewed heavily towards one or the other, that leaves space for the entry of, I would say, from our point of view, the Green Party to have an important presence. And I would argue that it's important to have both a positive program that you can identify with, which I think the Green Party represents, uh, but at the same time, not to forget the defensive consideration that we have to keep in mind about the difference between a re-installation uh, of Trump and a switch to the Democrats. So just as far as that goes, I would say that uh, uh, Biden is a lamentable candidate. However, the fact that um, uh, Trump has created such a movement of white nationalism, white supremacism, justifying all this, uh, requires that he be repudiated at the national level. And so that's, I think, an important underlying consideration as we go forward. So I've mentioned a number of considerations, but we can pick up and go further on any of them. But I think that's a, a kind of a brief view of the overall picture. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, you cover so much there, Victor. And I, I would like to, to, to dwell with the institutional a little bit longer before we dive into it. I'm sure many people are itching to talk about, uh, you know, the, the 2020 election, and uh, and Trump's tweet, which uh, I think we saw in our in our our, our pre um, slides to start the show, 
you know, his, his, his uh, test balloon as to postponing the election. We'll come to that in a moment. But Victor, I want to just ask another question that comes out of reading your book, which I do, again, highly recommend. I, I plan to assign it to many of my students this fall, actually, as a, as a primer. I mean, you talk about some of the institutions, even that right down to the present, right, that, that, dis that continue to disenfranchise people, not, not only at the polls or through closing poll, polling places or not counting votes, but just by but making it, you know, uh, illegal for certain people to vote at all, right? right? I mean, obviously, one of the most obvious examples would be the mass incarceration system, which you have written about extensively and, in fact, are very active in crossing those walls through your correspondence with so many politically active prisoners. I wonder if you, could you say a little more about the, you know, I guess two questions. What the ongoing institutional basis, the kind of background forces or institutional forces that limit and make the electorate in this country not the same thing as the people who actually live here. And then, and then on the basis of that, maybe engage in a little bit of a utopian um, thought experiment, which again, you do this in your book a little bit. What if we actually had a system where everyone was able to vote and literally everyone who lives here was able to vote? What would, in your view, this is again, a thought experiment, how would American politics you know, look different, you think, or what, what would be the implications of what was considered, you know, realistic, uh, the left, right, and center of American politics, if we, in fact, did have a system where everyone could, in fact, vote, not only the, including many of the people that are just systematically locked out, as well as people who just are, are not able to vote for other circumstances. That's kind of a two-part question, but I'd love yeah. to hear your thoughts on I, that. I think it's uh, good to answer the second question first, because obviously, if everyone voted, uh, we have more. We would have a more progressive outcome. I think that that's clear. That's recognized, of course, even by Trump and and all his supporters. That they recognize that if everyone voted, uh, the Republicans would uh, would never get in again. Uh, the uh, they feel that the demographic pressure also of the country becoming uh, more and more populated by people who are not of European descent, and they feel they see that as a as an existential threat to themselves. They're using any whatever to keep them out. And so the, the limitation of the voting has always been directed against those who would have the greatest interest in structural change, which means against those who are most disadvantaged by the present system. Now, the successive ways in which this limitation has been carried out, that's a whole history. Uh, and of course, we, we know about uh, slavery and, and, then, and, then, and then the fact that uh, after the Civil War, when slavery was formally ended, except for convicts, uh, the, South, uh, it, the Southern states imposed a, a system of, of segregation, which effectively disenfranchised uh, most, almost all of the black population. But then when the Civil Rights Movement came in, uh, and the Voting Rights Act came in 1965, and uh, outlawed those restrictions that had been imposed in the southern states, there was a need from that perspective, from a perspective that had supported that system, to find a new basis for, do, for achieving the same ends. And this is where, as you suggest, the mass incarceration comes in, the disenfranchisement of the, of the black population, disenfranchised uh, uh, former felons, and so on. And, the, uh, and this was partly you know, with, with, the, with the drug war, longer prison sentences, the prison population uh, quintupling over a 30-year period, and then uh, with people who had served in prison 
uh, often uh, being uh, unable to vote or at least fearing that they might be. And then, but then in addition to those, uh, those direct things, uh, the, the new laws that were uh, passed to re require certain types of ID uh, done in a, in a way that really a targeted kind of way. It had nothing to do with the supposed claims of preventing fraud. Because for example, in the state of Wisconsin, uh, they, they, they wouldn't accept a student, a state issued photo, stu, a photo ID that was for students. Uh, they, they wouldn't accept that. Uh, so, so it's a totally arbitrary type of thing. So, uh, uh, and I might mention in that connection that young people, uh, as well as uh, black people, people of color generally, are on the whole, especially at the present time, more likely to be progressive, but they're also more subject to uh, pretexts uh, that can be devised to exclude them, such as the fact that they've, they've moved, changed their dress and that type of thing. So there's all kinds of stratagems that are used and they're constantly changing and adapting to the new situation. And this is what Pallast uh, writes about so well, but certainly uh, th there's been a succession of different methods uh, used. And of course, now the most recent uh, attempt to suppress the vote is the, the campaign to destroy the postal service uh, so as to make impossible uh, the, the kind of mail ballot that would be needed to address the conditions for voting in this time of, of pandemic. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think you've brought us right back to, to the present again, Victor, which I appreciate. And, and I think as we, as we do, you know, return right to this moment in 2020, this trial balloon tweet from Trump this morning about perhaps postponing the election and casting, um, you know, doubt on the possible results of a mail-in ballot election. I mean, let, let's dive into this now in terms of what we see as the stakes of this uh, 2020 election and what, what we make of, you know, Trump's tweets and other indications from Trump and other folks in the Republican Party uh, and, and the, as to trying to put off the election, delay it, uh, or otherwise call into question the possible results of that election. Actually, Medea, I'd like to welcome you in uh, to the conversation at this point to speak to anything that you've heard Victor say, but also perhaps uh, to maybe start with the present this morning's tweet from Trump. What went through your head when you, you saw that tweet? Um, and uh, how did, generally do you see the kind of uh, situation of this 2020 election? Well, first I thought, coup. Uh, I had been in, in uh, Bolivia in November 2019 and was witness to the coup that happened there. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, what is this? He's announcing a uh, a coup before it happened. And then the more I thought about it and heard people talking about it, uh, I realized that it was not so much that he was really going to postpone the election because he doesn't have the power to do that. It was that he wanted to uh, call the election itself into question and lay the groundwork for not only his base to say, wait a minute, you know, this isn't fair, we don't concede, and the other to have a long drawn out process, much longer and much more drawn out than uh, 2000 when uh, it went into the courts there. But uh, I, I think we could see something uh, significantly be more complicated because that was just in one state, in the state of Florida. But imagine if uh, his wing of the Republican Party, because I'm sure there would be some division as we're already seeing uh, since his tweet came out, but his base and his uh, followers trying to contest this in states all over the country and the mayhem that would result in that. Would we be able to bring out our folks? Would his folks come out? Would they be armed? 
uh, it just conjures up a very scary future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it almost points towards the possibility of insurrection or, you know, the, the prospect, the specter of a kind of possible civil war, right? I mean, or at least, um, you know, so, I mean, what do you think uh, should be the popular left response in this moment? I mean, not to say we should be just chasing down uh, every, you know, reactive to every Trump tweet. Of course, you know, again, he, he, some people I've seen speculating online that this tweet could be primarily to distract us from the bad economic news from this quarter that has come in, right? So there's always, with Trump, this like doubleness. Something could be a horrible trial balloon that really is dangerous, and yet at the same time could be uh, distracting from something that's actually even more likely to actually occur. So, I mean, I'd like to hear, you know, how, what do you think should be of the progressive or left response to this sort of coup floating? Uh, and, and after I hear your response, Midi, I'd like to maybe hear Victor's response on that too. And just to the morning's, uh, the, the morning's events and, and just the, the immediacy of this 2020, this threat of uh, delegitimizing the election that we're facing right now. Uh, yeah, Midia. I think as Victor points out in his books, change happens through social movements and we can't leave it to political parties. And our opposition to uh, Trump's manipulation of the elections, voter suppression, uh, the lies he tells about fraud connecting to mail-in voting, all of this has to come from a place of uh, not, I support the Democratic Party and want to see Biden in the White House. It's got to come from a place of, uh, I want to have the United States um, one day have free and fair elections. And uh, we're working towards that goal. And as we work towards that goal, we mobilize. So we haven't had a chance yet to talk about what Victor talks about in the books of the importance of social movements in general. Uh, but I think uh, we need to discuss that when we talk about what, uh, how we should be planning for November. Because I think there's two roads uh, to pass. One is already, I see very uh, closely allied Democratic Party organizations putting out uh, alarm bells saying, uh-oh, look what Trump said. Most of them say, so give us money. Uh, but, you know, some of them saying, all right, we've got to start organizing. And then I know that there are groups that are not connected to the Democratic Party who have already been saying and already been online uh, organizing for what can we do uh, if there is no election, if there's a stolen election, if Trump uh, won't concede the election. So my advice is we don't go with the Democratic Party operatives who would manipulate us as this goes forward, but we go with the nonpartisan groups. Uh, and there's many of them uh, that are organizing. And I think in a, in a way it's very exciting to see the response to the one tweet today and how many uh, groups have pounced on it to say, okay, you know, now let's uh, ramp up the organizing we've already been talking about in the last month or two. That's great. I'd love to hear more about that organizing and, and, and how that might actually look uh, on the ground. But Victor, let's go to you first to just hear your, your thoughts on Trump's tweet this morning and, and more generally these issues that Medea has been bringing us into. Just briefly, I, I think the basic point is that Trump knows and the Republicans know that they stand to lose the election. And so they're doing everything possible uh, to prevent that from happening. And, and all the scenarios that Medea mentions are, are possible. Um, 
And I think that uh, in response to that, uh, it's important that we, uh, that there be an appeal to what, what is really the base, those who vote for the Democrats without really endorsing their program, but the real base of the party, which is uh, the, uh, the working class people of color and so on, because there's a whole debate within the Democratic Party and really a, a, even a rupture within that party between those who really represent the, the party's base and those who instead think of winning over Republicans to their side. So, so we have to encourage the, uh, those who uh, really want to activate the base by pushing for the progressive programs that recognize the gravity of the situation that the society is in, uh, not only the COVID crisis, more generally the absence of a, of a decent healthcare system, and then on a larger scale, uh, the environmental crisis as a whole. I don't think there's enough of a sense of emergency in the population as a whole about the urgency of, of addressing the environmental crisis. And so the emphasis needs to be not just on the personnel, but on, but on the issues. And if people can be uh, persuaded of the urgency of this and can get involved in, on that basis, uh, it'll motivate people to come out more, even incidentally in the elections, but more uh, in a more long-term sense as part of the kinds of social movements that we're looking for and trying to build. So, Joseph, can I ask a question, uh, Victor? Absolutely. Uh, I wonder, Victor, with what you think is going to happen uh, in the economy from now till November, and if there is not another bill that comes out that uh, that compensates people for uh, the their lost income, and we start seeing these massive evictions and uh, really extreme. Uh, situations of lots of people in this country. Do you think that is the uh, the basis of more of an uprising before November that will not just be an anti-Trump uprising, but will be against the system? I, I agree with that. I, I mean, I, I think it's a disaster. Uh, it's already a disaster, but becoming even more so because with all the evictions, this has a ripple effect, which goes back and uh, can undermine the system as a whole, which is again more of the uh, the, the underlying reason why the Republicans fear uh, the outcome of the election and doing everything uh, possible to distort that outcome. Uh, it's it's a really severe situation. We are in a depression, and it's only getting worse. And they're, and they're making it worse uh, as we speak. And I I would recommend to listeners to follow uh, Richard Wolf's program, Economic Update. He has an excellent coverage of this whole issue and of the tremendous scale that has been reached by the debt. And this, this can't go on. You're just creating money out of, out of nothing. Uh, it can go on for a certain time and th then, then the bubble will burst eventually. And whether it'll happen before the, the election, uh, I can't tell. I don't think anyone knows that. But there's a certain fear on the part of those uh, in office uh, that they're being discredited all the time. And that's why they have to take these desperate measures to suppress popular participation. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'm hearing from both of you is that you clearly kind of reject, right, uh, a kind of binary opposition, like an either or approach to thinking about electoral politics uh, versus social movement politics. You've both spoken about social movements as the primary agent of change. 
and yet you're both clearly not dismissive or disparaging of those who engage in electoral politics, uh, even though you have clear criticisms which haven't been fully developed yet, but I'm sure I can imagine some of them in terms of the actually existing Democratic Party and particularly Democratic Party leadership and Biden himself. So I guess I'd like to bring it back to, to Medea. Could you elaborate a little more on, on maybe whether you want to mention specific groups or the types of actions, what would it mean to build, you know, the movement to defend democracy, to assure the results of the election, to make the election happen, that would not simply be succumbing to kind of just take, taking the, the line from the Democratic Party and just following Biden's, you know, or, or just simply endorsing Biden. What, what are the different forms that, that either you think this kind of organizing could take or that frankly it is already taking uh, and that we just need to kind of plug people into? Well, first let me say that at the time of the 2000 election, I was very active in the Green Party. And when I saw how uh, the election was being stolen by the Republicans, uh, went down to Broward County in Florida and um, started, actually got into the, uh, uh, the county um, offices where they were doing the recount and said that as a legitimate third party, the Green Party had the right to have people in there as part of the recount. Uh, but more important, we were going to communities around there uh, and Jesse Jackson was there at the time and he was going into the black churches and he was getting people ready to rise up. And they wanted to rise up. They wanted to take to the streets. They wanted to surround the, um, the Broward County uh, building. They wanted to, uh, they talked about an ongoing um, protest and uh, the, 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 um, the elements were there for that to happen except the higher ups in the Democratic Party came in and said, no way, no, 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 uh, and um, squashed the whole thing. So in one way, I think that people spontaneously want to come out and protest when they feel their vote is being stolen. But that's something that would happen more after the election than before the election. Uh, so in some ways, I think afterwards, there is more possibility of, with some leadership behind it, but a lot of spontaneity. It's before the elections that we have to have more of a, uh, of a push. Uh, and I do see, like last night, there was a call uh, that I unfortunately missed, but I heard it was great, of a group called Shutdown DC. And they're talking about you know, what to do in the case of, um, uh, it, if it looks more and more like these elections are either not gonna happen or not gonna be fair. Um, there's groups that work like Extinction Rebellion, the more radical groups in the environmental movement, uh, the more radical groups in the uh, healthcare movement. Uh, all of these groups are, are, are talking. And then there's uh, other people that are doing sort of role playing um, as you would do war games uh, to kind of play out the scenarios that, of, of what could happen. Uh, and so, you know, I think uh, Trump's tweet today has given tremendous impetus, and there will probably be many more of these groups now um, coming out to start creating affinity groups, um, which if anybody doesn't know, they're smaller groups um, that are people who are friends with each other, 12, 15 people who uh, can take very quick action, spontaneous action. Um, that's one way of organizing where people then have spokespeople from each of those affinity groups that are part of a spokespeople group. And it's much more uh, decentralized way that is 
harder to infiltrate uh, and uh, harder to destroy. So I could see that kind of organizing happening. Uh, but I think um, uh, today uh, has really it sunk into a lot of people that um, we are in an emergency situation and we can't sit back and wait for, uh, wait to see what happens and then rise up after the election. One great thing about Trump is that he doesn't seem to keep a secret very well, right? So, I mean, I guess he, uh, although you never know what he's throwing on the wall, how much of it will stick, uh, but he certainly has given us a kind of forewarning. Uh, Victor, I know you've been really uh, plugging this Greg Palace book for quite some time. I mean, since the book came out anyway, you read it, uh, How Trump Stole 2020. I have not read it yet, but I'm a big fan of knowing the obstacles. And if you know the obstacles, then you're halfway to knowing what the, the practice would be to counter them. Um, I mean, would you like to point our attention to anything that you've taken from Greg Palace work or more broadly from your own study of the disfranchisement strategies that are in play in terms of what might be the inroads for organizing to counter those strategies? I, I assume, you know, Palace wants his title to be incorrect, right, uh, by illuminating the dangers that, that it could come true. Is there anything you'd like to point out to us in terms of the kind of strategies currently underway that might then uh, point us towards the kind of organizing that, that needs to be done to counter? Well, this is a difficult question, but I think that the uh, emphasis on what he's describing in a way should be part of, it, cut, it should cut across all the other uh, interests that, that we have because he, what he describes in the book is, is so basic to uh, people's uh, elemental form of political participation that um, one would think everybody would be, uh, would be interested in. in. In terms of what exactly can be done organizationally, I mean, I, I'm thinking especially uh, around universities like, well, again, it, it differs in each state and with the laws that you have in each state, but, but certainly uh, am among the, the students who are deprived of the vote by having to, uh, not being able to use their uh, student ID to qualify them, uh, there's a there's a constituency right there for uh, for being organized. Uh, I think more generally, uh, what we need is again always a, a great expansion of the uh, alternative media, of the progressive radical alternative media, uh, to cast the light on this, and also really to call attention to the way the uh, that the democratic establishment has not been the democratic party establishment has not been interested in this issue, and actually one of the uh, chapters in Palace's recent book uh, is not just about Trump, it is about how the, uh, the Democrats also engage in this kind of trickery, as in, in California, where uh, those who wanted to vote uh, in the primary for Bernie Sanders uh, found it uh, difficult to do so because the ballots they were handed uh, didn't give a slot for the, uh, the uh, presidential choice. And they had to make a, use a special term to request the right kind of ballot in order to do this. So, so I mean, th in other words, this is a general uh, practice of the whole sort of political side of the ruling class to suppress any progressive uh, tendency. And yeah, I, I, yeah, where to focus is, the thing is it cuts across every constituency. So, so I, I don't know, I don't have a single target constituency for this type of thing, but just to say that the, uh, that the radical media as a whole 
should draw more attention to this, to the total corruption of the process. Because one of the things Pallas shows, he, he began uh, actually, it was already on his website before this book came out, saying that since 2016, 16 million people nationwide had had their names scrubbed from the voter rolls without being notified. And the thing is, the, the pretext for that is that, that they had moved. And one of the tricks, again, is to, to send people a postcard. And if you don't hear back, uh, then you scrub their names from the roll, but without ever notifying them. And, and the, the assumption is that, uh, uh, this is that this is to prevent kind of some kind of fraud. And yet, as Pallas points out, uh, nobody whose name has been taken off the rolls has ever been uh, prosecuted for, uh, for fraud. They just take their names off the roll, rolls uh, quietly. So I think just making a big noise about it, also because this shows in a larger sense the un- and anti-democratic nature of capitalism as a whole, that the, the ruling class has to resort to these measures because it has lost all basis for support for its actual handling of society. It, it can't win elections fair and square so it, it has to resort to these types of, of stratagem. Can I jump in here too? Yeah, please, uh, anytime. Yeah. Uh, again, a, a question for Victor is, um, uh, but we have seen uh, with instances of the squad and now more recently, uh, Jamal Bowman having defeated uh, Elliot Abrams, a Democratic Party insider, if there ever was, uh, and so you see these, these points of light where uh, progressive people that have connections to a base uh, make their way in. And you also see that whether it was Bernie Sanders' campaign or AOC or many others right now, um, the ability to raise significant amounts of money from the grassroots and not needing the big money in politics. So how much do you see that, Victor, as an exception to the rule, or do you see that as uh, a light that could grow stronger and stronger and really move the Democratic Party to the left? Yeah, it, it's certainly an exception to the uh, Democratic Party uh, dominance. And, and as I think as AOC herself mentioned at one point, uh, she said in any other country, uh, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same political party. And uh, I'm, I'm very encouraged by this development. And, and it, uh, there's a peculiarity of the, of the parties in this country that they're not real parties, they're electoral committees. And what I see ultimately, my hope ultimately, is that all those who constitute the progressive wing of the Democratic Party will eventually see that they have to desert that shell. So we, there has to be a big uh, space uh, for them to uh, develop as, as a kind of independent force, which I think they potentially are. Independent, that is to say, of the current corporate Democratic Party leadership. So, so I do see hope in, in that direction. And they also are among those who might uh, call attention to the undemocratic nature of, of, of the system. But I, but I think that the fact that uh, you could have on the one hand, uh, Sanders uh, making this impressive showing of running campaigns now twice based primarily on small contributions, but through one stratagem or another being prevented from uh, getting the level of, uh, let's say, recognition or success uh, that he that he's earned by it, and and this time around in the 2020, the process was a lot was a lot more complicated than it was in 2016, but with every, sort of all the establishment candidates sort of suddenly dropping out and leaving the way open for Biden, 
who had he had to face Sanders all along at the beginning uh, would probably have uh, fared not nearly as, as well. I mean, he sort of won by, by forfeiture, by forfeit. So uh, yes, the, there is space in the sense that the Democratic Party is not a real party. It's a kind of umbrella within which uh, progressive uh, candidates can come to the fore. But we have to hope that ultimately the constituencies that they uh, speak to will uh, merge with uh, those of, uh, say, with, of the Green Party, with they're largely the same people even. I think, who, who, who support both. So one thing I hear you saying, I think, Victor, and perhaps Medea as well, is that in some sense, the Democratic Party, as it's historically existed, points of light to one side for the moment, doesn't really have what it takes to, to defend our democracy, right? And, and, and it doesn't, isn't actually that committed to deep democracy in general. And that thus opens up the possibility that those who are further to the left or more progressive than the Democratic Party as it now exists can in fact uh, grow, the, grow the forces that might in fact transcend the Democratic Party and, and create the basis for some kind of new politics, ironically by supporting the Democratic Party right now, or at least, or at least by uniting with the Democratic Party in its fight against Trump, right? That is to say, it's not, again, it's not either or supporting some kind of left alternative or engaging with the Democrats, but there's the possibility of kind of doing both at once. Whether you, it sounds like you both agree with that, although you might just, you know, have a different view of like whether or not that change will actually ultimately find a home within the Democratic Party and pulling that party to the left, or it will have to burst that party asunder and create some new form. So I guess my question here is, what do you say to those on the left who maybe, including perhaps some people who were really turned on and inspired by the Bernie Sanders of the last two elections and who, and who maybe identify as socialists or transformative, more radical than the Democratic Party, and who now feel um, like they've been sold out so bad that Biden is, is, such a, is such a horrible figure, both in terms of his record and his own, you know, kind of the emergent stories about his personal life. That, that he's just someone that they can't support and that they feel that they're somehow corrupted or uh, diminished by supporting a Biden campaign, even if Trump is also awful. I mean, what is your view of, you know, to, to that kind of wing of the left movement, I think, which is, is, is significant, uh, at least in, in numbers of young pe younger people and, and others who just feel so fed up. They think the Democratic Party is the graveyard of social movements and that frankly, we, we, the real change is gonna come from the street anyway. So why should we even bother, you know, putting significant per percentage of our energy into voting when voting is going to mean ultimately voting for Biden? I'd, I'd love to hear both of your responses to that kind of, um, that kind of outlook. We, we decided against having a debate on the show between, at least today, between like the voting and non-voting left. But I still would like to hear your thoughts playing devil's advocate a bit to that, uh, that kind of left position, uh, anti-democratic party, or perhaps anti-electoralism uh, in general? Uh, I don't know who wants to take it first. Maybe Medea, can we go to you first and then Victor? Uh, sure, I think um, you said put a significant amount of your energy into the electoral politics. When uh, the Sanders was a candidate, I thought that was very important to do. Uh, I personally dropped a lot of things to start canvassing and uh, went down to Florida, spending time there, 
uh, and so many young people dropped what they were doing and, and put their lives on hold to go do that. Uh, now that it's Biden, I certainly am not going to do that. And I know that uh, uh, the vast majority of people who are part of the uh, Sanders campaign are not going to do that. But most of us will go and vote for Biden. So that's the difference between you know, pressing a button or sending in any, uh, your, your absentee ballot and spending a lot of your time on electoral politics. And then in terms of what difference does it make? Um, I work on foreign policy issues. And right now I see the Trump administration starving the people of Iran, the people of Venezuela, the people of Cuba, and I can go on and on, unfortunately. And the, there are millions of people in those countries waiting with bated breath to see if we can get Trump out of office and get Biden in because they think there's a lot more possibilities with the Biden administration to perhaps go back to some of the uh, very few but positive things that Obama did, such as the Iran nuclear deal, such as reestablishing relations with Cuba. And certainly we didn't have uh, this very brutal, evil, inhumane level of economic sanctions that we have now under Trump. So for me, uh, reflecting the needs of people that I uh, work with on a regular basis that are in other countries and are the victims of this administration's foreign policy, which you could say is part of an overall Democratic Republican military industrial complex, um, you do have to say that there are differences that actually can make a difference in people's survival. Okay, thank you, Medea. We'll come, I wanna come back to that in a moment, but let's hear Victor's thoughts on this. Victor, yeah. what's your response to Basically, that kind of, yeah. yeah I agree entirely with uh, what Medea has said. Uh, I mean, uh, Bi Biden is a, is a terrible candidate. Uh, he's even criticized uh, Trump for not being hostile enough towards China, maybe that's pushed Trump to take a more hostile stance towards China. Uh, but, but the whole point is that we have to view, uh, we have to view that uh, the, the Biden campaign, not as something requiring a great deal of time and energy and support, but as requiring simply a recognition that the importance of getting Trump out of office uh, is great uh, not because Biden would necessarily himself be that different, but because it would create more, uh, slightly more openings marginally at, at certain points, but would above all, I think, uh, represent a kind of repudiation uh, at the popular level of the, of the terrible uh, racist uh, white nationalist uh, approach to everything that is embodied by Trump. Yeah, I mean, um, these are these are profound points. Um, I wanted to ask you, Medea, as someone who uh, you know came onto my radar as a direct action activist, right, with with Code Pink, right, involved particularly as you mentioned in in, in calling attention to foreign policy injustices and and the suffering of U.S. policies that are inflicting uh, what they're inflicting abroad. I wanted to, you know, how do you see? You've touched on it, but I, I wanted to say speak more to your own experience as an activist, someone who's routinely, consistently disrupted, you know, speeches and committee meetings of both leaders in both parties to call attention to, you know, some of these foreign policy injustices. What is the outlook of 
uh, a Trump administration versus a Biden administration look like to you in terms of how you evaluate the efficacy and the viability of direct action as a mode of pressuring policy change, you know, on Capitol Hill? Um, you know, I, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on, like, on how, the, how does the electoral scheme affect the activism? So the activism uh, is usually uh, a coordinated inside-outside strategy. And that means you have to have people on the inside who you can relate to, talk to, put the pressure on. And it's been a frustrating three and a half years with the Trump administration, uh, because when you work on foreign policy issues, there is nobody on the inside that you can put the pressure on that could have any effect, or at least I haven't found them. For example, under the Obama administration, we would have people literally inside the White House. We would have people in the State Department and not just people in Congress who we could talk to, who we could put the pressure on. We could find out where they lived and do a protest outside their house. Um, we could do all kinds of things like that. In the case of Trump, yeah, we've gone to the home of John Bolton and done protests out there. He could give a, you know, nothing. Um, we've uh, tried to, uh, well, we have been, been arrested in hearings um, interrupting Mike Pompeo or uh, or Mark Esper, Secretary of Defense. You know, they don't they don't care. It doesn't. There there's no line from there to. Uh, the kind of effective pressure that you need. With Biden, uh, already we're part of groups that have been mobilizing to put the pressure on Biden. And that could be through doing demonstrations at the Democratic Party offices. Uh, and it could be through getting group letters signed that then go to his campaign. And lo and behold, his campaign then responds. And they have been reaching out to the different groups uh, on the left to say, let's have regular conversations, you know, so maybe they're just playing us. But in any case, we're getting to know people who might be the people in the administration who then we could have uh, better campaigns, more effective campaigns to put the pressure on them. So I see it as actually quite different um, when you can uh, have a campaign putting pressure on somebody who is pressurable, who could possibly care about you and your constituency. And if you grow your constituency, that would actually have more pressure on them versus people who are in their bubble and don't give a damn what you do. Right, or, and don't even have to pretend that they give a damn, right? I mean, that, that might be the other thing. You might say, even if you believe so, such and such a democratic person is a, is a racist you know, dog and doesn't care about poor people any more than the Republican, they, they at least have to maybe pretend like they do. Right, which, which I mean, uh, which, which still can be material. Uh, Victor, you've said a couple things I wanted to ask you to deepen, um, which you've touched on. One is this idea of elections is playing defense, social movements is playing kind of offense. Uh, I'd love to hear you deepen that notion a little bit. And the other thought is, when you said this idea that we need to think of the election as a chance to have a total popular repudiation of the Trump administration, quite apart from whatever anyone thinks of Biden or the Democrats. What I'd like to ask you, what in particular you think needs to be repudiated? Which I guess is another way of saying, what was, what has been new about this 
uh, Trump administration or different that really needs to be singled out that represents a particular threat uh, on whatever level you you understand that threat to be and, and that it needs to be, uh, you know, needs to be so firmly rejected? Well, one of the things that characterized Trump, uh, especially, is he had this obsession from the beginning with undoing anything that Obama had done. Uh, so undoing, notably, the treaty about Iran, but, but also undoing any kind of restrictions on environment, on exploitation of, of the environment and so on. So, so the, it was a single-minded thing, you could say, also part of his racism, because oh, it's given Obama's being black. And so that in itself was for Trump a kind of motivation for attacking him at every level, which he started to do even before he was nominated with his business about challenging Obama's uh, citizenship. So uh, the, the, the racism is so deep and has had such a, a powerful impact in mobilizing hateful actions on the part of the white nationalist constituency uh, that, that that's definitely something that I think it's extremely important to, uh, to repudiate. So, so I think that, yeah, that, that, that would be the, the main point. What, what was the other point that you raised? Well, I mean, it was about I, the, the question of offense and defense, right? Oh, offense and, and defense, I mean, yes. Victor, one thing I always appreciate about your work in every realm, you're only talking about kind of one aspect today, and I know, Medea, you've written about so many of these issues, too, beyond just, you know, elections per se. Uh, but this, you, you refuse often, Victor, a kind of either-or view, instead of trying, trying to work through a kind of more as we say in the Marxist tradition, dialectical kind of relationship between the different aspects of something rather than, you know, just choosing one or the other. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, I heard you the other day use this idea of elections as a primarily defensive maneuver in relationship in, in, to uh, social movements as a more offensive strategy. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you could, you could develop that a little bit for, for, for those who are listening. Right. Uh, I'm not talking there about all elections. Uh, but I am talking about the U.S. presidential election. I mean, there are elections, including within the U.S., like the elections that have resulted in the uh, victories of the squad and of recently of Jamal Bowman, uh, that, that they were proactive. Um, I, 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 in a way, prefer the term proactive to offensive, but uh, they were proactive. But, the, but when, you ha when you have someone with, with as bad a record as Biden, uh, then uh, you have to uh, look at the election as a defensive thing, because you're, we have to be able to recognize the need to get Trump out, which means in an immediate sense, casting a vote for Biden without in any sense implying that we support what Biden has stood for or what he continues to stand for. So in that sense, the, uh, the decision to uh, say that in swing states, uh, the vote should go to Biden it's a defensive thing. It's, it's uh, again, to repeat what Saren said, is uh, choosing your enemies. It's defensive in the sense of uh, helping to shape in whatever limited way the conditions in which we carry on our struggle uh, that has a, a proactive uh, or offensive uh, aim. Yeah, thanks for that clarification, Victor. And I, just for those who aren't familiar, the Saren that has been alluded to a couple times is actually Saren Mudliar, who is one of the co-producers of the show Shelter and Solidarity, as well as a well-known Boston area activist and a writer and author uh, and a you know, fellow uh, activist as well. Uh, and yes, I think his idea of choosing 
our enemies, right? Making distinctions between the enemy we want to fight now and the enemy we'd rather fight later, right? Rather than thinking this idea that you have to be, to, to vote for someone, you have to ultimately be supporting them. Well, I want to, at this point, uh, just make a, an announcement to, to all, everyone who's online right now with us on Zoom and on Facebook. Where in a few minutes, we will turn to some of your questions and comments. And so if you would like to indicate that you want to speak by putting a note in the chat box, or if you're on Facebook, writing in the Facebook thread, we'll try to get some of you. It's a little harder to get our Facebook watchers involved, but we can read your question or you can we can unmute you and you can uh, you can speak aloud if you're on the Zoom with us here. And so just in a, just a few minutes, we will uh, turn in that direction. I know there's been quite a bit of buzz in the chat box here, so hopefully we'll have some good questions. I see uh, Bobby Lee and some others uh, are on the list. Actually, we have one right now uh, from Hanania Pierre-Louis uh, from Facebook, which I'd like to give voice to. Um, Hanania um, asks, uh, of our guests, how do you foresee Trump's sowing of doubt into the electoral process? You know, calling it rigged, affecting local elections, right? Uh, could, you know, in what ways could he, what he's already saying affect the voting process that unfolds? And he, he adds to this, should we, um, the, you know, the we, I, I suppose those are, who are not for Trump, uh, we seize upon this moment to define in what way the system is rigged and not leave it up to the conservatives to tap into that distrust that people uh, have to have to serve their, serve their own agendas. So, I mean, I guess it's a kind of an interesting question here. It's like, how can we in, in, talk to people like they should have faith in the system in order to defend it, even as we also have, right, as they started the show with, quite a radical critique of the ways in which American democracy is not fully democratic to begin with. Like, how do we, how do we avoid falling into the kind of cynicism of dismissing what we have Right, even without romanticizing it, um, in in the way that maybe some some um, some liberals would like to. Um, so I don't know. Kind of two questions here. How do you see Trump's attempts to kind of diminish the election uh, playing out? Uh, uh, and uh, and also, should we ourselves embrace the criti critique, the critical approach to our elect electoral system, uh, rather than than kind of just falling into a more, I guess, liberal, patriotic rhetoric around elections? Well, I, I would say one thing is that uh, Trump is not only uh, commenting on elections, uh, they're deputizing operatives to intimidate people. They had a whole program of, of having so-called poll watchers who go uh, self-appointed, uh, not official things, uh, who go, uh, they're deputizing. I read this article from Rolling Stone, 50,000 at least uh, poll watchers around the country to go, and especially to uh, constituencies with people of color, and to uh, to challenge their uh, their right to vote. Uh, so, so it's there's a real uh, uh, effort in in that sense. In terms of uh, defending the uh, the electoral process, uh, I I think we have to recognize the the, the basic structure. Of the, if if you have a voting system, uh, that the the popular vote is a potential uh, instrument of, of change. It, it's not necessarily a vote for the status quo. And especially as we see now with the society in crisis with, and with the, the environmental emergency and so on, and the, the, the terrible uh, racism, uh, that the response to this, uh, the, uh, the vote is one small vehicle, but uh, cumulatively, 
an important one. And so uh, I, I think that uh, defending the right to vote is like defending free speech. It's not that free speech is uh, given to us on a silver platter any more than the right to vote. The right to vote had to be fought for, as we know from the civil rights struggles, and as we still know now, the, 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 the effort to overcome these restrictions on the right to vote, the people who, uh, who have their polling places cut in, what well, they, they cut 95% of the polling places recently in Kentucky to, to struggle and overcome that is, is a popular struggle. So, so you might say that the, in defending people's right to vote, you're uh, defending uh, the opportunity, slim as it might be, to protest or rebel against uh, the system that's being uh, imposed on us. And so it's, uh, the, the system has been, in other words, forced to give a certain element of democracy, but it, it does so begrudgingly. And so we have to defend that, uh, let's say, sliver of democracy uh, against those who would try to shut it out, which is exactly what uh, Trump and his cohorts are doing. Okay, thank you. Victor, I mean, would you speak to this too? Yeah, I mean, it's a fabulous question, a really, really important one right now. And it uh, kind of uh, sends off some uh, bells in my head that yes, actually, um, the implications of that question is, is right, that we should respond not by trying to defend the system and say it's not rigged, uh, but by trying to educate people about how the system really is rigged. And um, certainly, we many of us would agree the system in the Democratic Party is rigged towards the more mainstream candidates. Uh, but looking at the issues right now, particularly in terms of presidential politics, we see it being rigged by the Republican Party. And um, so, and point out all of the structural problems that, Victor, you talk about in your book. Um, so yes, it's a good opening for us to agree with Trump that the system is rigged, but it's not because of mail-in voting, uh, voting by mail, it's because of all these other things. And then I think um, there was uh, some mention about local elections in that question too, and I think that's a really important issue for us to talk about more because um, we tend to put so much emphasis in the presidential elections and then the congressional elections. And um, I find uh, not enough of us put uh, our energies where we really can make the difference, and that is in local elections. And I ran as a Green Party candidate back in 2000. And our goal then, like I ran in California, I knew I was never going to win. I was running for Senate but was to set up as many Green Party locals as we could in the state and support as many local elections as possible using that campaign. I don't really see that happening very much now. Uh, and I think um, uh, that when we talk about Black Lives Matter and defund the police and the moment that we're in right now of such potential for resting millions and millions of dollars in local funds, and putting it into things that really benefit the people, uh, local elections has even, have even more importance now than before. So I would say um, that, I, again, I love that question uh, and I think we can um, uh, use it and uh, as we debunk uh, the, how undemocratic uh, our system is, but not get people too cynical because we want them to vote and especially we want them to be active at the local level.
Yeah, these are great responses. Uh, Midi, I'd actually like to ask you to follow up. Um, could you elaborate a little bit or give us your brief assessment of what that Green Party campaign um, was like and how it played out? I mean, I really like the idea of conceiving of a local run that is primarily about setting up chapters, right, of a third party of a more progressive alternative to what we have. How, how, did you find that the electoral can, uh, campaign form what did, was conducive to that kind of organizing? I know some would say that it's, that it's, again, better to start with issues on the ground alone because the electoral thing becomes such a distraction and accusations of being a spoiler or all these kinds of, you know, kind of mainstream uh, corporate dominated narratives you can get drawn into. Did you feel that the local electoral effort, even though it was for a congressional uh, office, was it not, um, was, um, was a viable strategic outlet? Would you recommend and that, or would you feel, would, or do you have lessons from that you would like to share? Well, in that case, it was in the state of California, which is heavily Democratic, and the Democratic Party was going to win. It was Dianne Feinstein's seat. There was no question of whether the Republican was going to win. And um, so it was a, quote, safe state for the Democrats, and we didn't get that kind of pushback about being spoilers. Um, and yes, it was the perfect venue because it was a, uh, 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 it was a, a, the, the ability to travel all around the state, uh, to get local groups to organize, to bring different issues together. It was certainly intersectional um, and um, a, a perfect venue for doing that. But you know, if you were doing it in a uh, swing state, I think you'd get a lot more pushback from it. And um, it wouldn't be the same kind of uh, ability to really go into a community, uh, bring people together, have that kind of positive energy. Um, so I think it depends on when and, and where. Okay, great. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. But we, we now have so many questions, I'm afraid I'm gonna lose somebody if I don't start making some space. So here's what I'd like to do. Um, guests, let me know if you want to jump in and just take the first question as such. What I usually like to do is maybe take a couple questions slash comments so that we can get more voices out there and then and then we'll go back. So I have Bobby Lee, I have Ben, and I have uh, Joe Nevins who is also on it, although he, uh, yeah. So let's go Bobby Lee. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to preface this a little bit before I get into the question. So I was watching the news a couple weeks ago now, and across the bottom of the news, right, it said America in crisis, and then it was like without a leader. And immediately my first thought was, we've been in crisis. We're not now in crisis. This isn't a new thing, right? We have been in crisis for decades. But did it take us not having a leader for us to actually get these movements, for us to get people to pay attention, to get people in the streets, right? How many people had been killed during the, uh, black men specifically, had been killed during the Obama administration and we never saw the reaction that we saw to George Floyd, right? Um, but I think that had we had an Obama or even a Bush, they would have you know, um, been able to tamp us down. They would have been giving us a nice speech about how it's wrong and that could have been them or someone they know and how it was really upsetting. And it, we all would have been placated with that pretty speech. Right, um, and then you see like the economic collapse and just everything that's going on. I'm just wondering if it actually took us to have no leader or an incompetent leader for us to really break through and get to where we are or if this would have happened without that. And then also, I mean, look, I, 
I cannot take Trump. I don't want to live in a fascist. I mean, we are living in fascism. I don't want it to get worse, right? Like, I, I can't take that. But if we get Biden, is he going to be able to tamp that down? Is he going to be able to kind of give us the pretty speeches and get us back under wraps and calm everyone down and get people out of the streets? Because I really think the only reason people are still there is because of who's in office. So I'm just curious what people are thinking about that. If I'm totally off the mark, it, you know. No, that's a very rich question. Let's actually go to the go to our guests for that. I mean, I, I'm reminded as as uh, Bobby Lee was speaking of. Uh, I think Glenn Ford was one for the Black Agenda Report who described Obama as not the lesser evil, but the more effective evil, right? And so this argument that in fact Trump's ineptitude and utter corruption can in fact enable uh, a kind of uh, spurring of mass protest that might not be possible under a more apparently rational, at least on some level together Democrat. Uh, what, do, what do you think about this? Is this, an, you know, is this something to consider, Medea, uh, Victor? Uh, I, well, just one quick comment is that I, I think the severity of the economic and the environmental situation has been aggravated and uh, even more so, so that it would be a challenge to, to anyone. And I, and I think in, in terms of the, uh, the, the George Floyd thing coming in the midst of the pandemic, but also the fact that the spectacular nature of the way it was shown uh, had a, a, you know, a galvanizing effect. You know, it was, so it was, it was, it's not just, in other words, the incompetence of Trump, but it's the convergence of, of all these crises and the, and the ultra graphic nature of the murder of George George Floyd, I think uh, contributed to, to this. Well, I would add the pandemic because I think if we don't get Trump out of office, there's gonna be hundreds of thousands of more people dying. Whereas if we had a Biden administration, uh, there might be more amenable to uh, a strategy that could tamp down this uh, pandemic and um, not make people, uh, um, and move us in a direction um, that other countries have gone in, uh, in, in, in terms of being able to uh, flatten the curve and they, a curve and then move in the direction of a, a vaccine that could be available to a lot more people than I think would be available uh, if it were under Trump. So I think the pandemic adds another element of urgency to this. Um, I understand what you're saying, Bobby Lee, and I, I certainly saw that when uh, we had a very vibrant anti-war movement that just fell apart uh, when Obama came in because people thought he was going to be the peace president. Um, but uh, I do think that um, what Victor said, uh, when certain things happen that are so outrageous, um, you can get movements going on even under a democratic president and, um, and I, I think that would happen under Biden because uh, he's not the first black president. He's not the first woman president. Uh, he's an elderly white guy that people don't really like. So coming out against him is not gonna be as difficult as it was to get people out uh, against Obama. Bobby Lee wanted to respond. Um, uh, Bobby Lee, who's sometimes a, a co-host here on Shelter and Solidarity as well, Bobby Lee. Yeah, um, I guess I should have, I didn't formulate it as much as I wanted to when I first started saying it, but I think um, incompetency, not just in George Floyd, but in the pandemic, in the economy, in everything, like he's just been so incompetent at the way he's handled everything, which 
um, like Victor said, kind of created this perfect storm, sort of speak, for us to be in this space. But had all, you know, had we, did we have to get this broken, I guess is my question, for people to be able to get in the streets? Um, did it have to get this bad? Did it take that? Because everyone else has been able to kind of manage, even though the economy is crap, even though our lives suck, even though, we, you know, living wages for millennials and all of that stuff, like, did it take someone that incompetent for us to really wake up to this? And I guess this, and then on top of that, this perfect storm, I guess that's more of my question. Um, and if we get someone competent who's able to kind of put things a little bit back together, is that going to just stop everything and stop all that forward movement that's kind of happening now? Maybe that's how I should have framed it. I, I apologize. Very helpful either way. I mean, I think, uh, Bobby Lee, you may be already overstating the competence of the person of, of Biden <laughs> in any way. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I mean, get Medea's point about Biden's limited ability to co-opt in the way that an Obama uh, could, I think, is is uh, speaks at least partly to your point, though it's an, it's an open question. The only thing I would add to it is that, you know, the the uh, Trump is certainly not helping everyone to wake up uh, to the reality of the world around us. In fact, you might argue a certain part of Americans are actually being put to sleep in a very, uh, in a, in, in, I mean, ideologically speaking, in, in a particular way. So uh, it's certainly a big question. Maybe we could take a few more, uh, unless Medea or Victor, you, you feel the urgent need to jump in on this, or can we hear a couple more and then and we can continue to address Bobby Lee's overall uh, concern? Well, I would just uh, say that if you look at the environmental movement, and Victor has been talking about the, the crisis in the environment, you see a steady buildup of organizing, 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 no matter who was in the White House, no matter if it was confronting Nancy Pelosi in her office or it was confronting a Republican. And I think that's the kind of model we want to go for. You just keep building and building and building, and you put the pressure on whoever is in power. Yeah, and I would also say that there's been this tremendous continuing increase in inequality. And so the, the economic situation has get, been getting more and more precarious all the time. So quite independently of, <clears throat> of the competence of anyone in the top position, uh, this crisis has been brewing. And again, I refer to Richard Wolff's analyses for this. I think it's, it's very convincing. Yeah, okay. I'd like us to take this time for real two comments we have uh, Bruce Simon and Ben Stork. Uh, let's hear those. And then after that, we'll uh, bring in uh, Joe, but maybe after we go back to the panel. Bruce? Hey, everybody. So I kind of want to play devil's advocate here a little and articulate a position that I don't necessarily believe in, but um, one that I think might be relevant to the conversation, which is kind of a revolutionary position. Do we need Trump to, to break things so badly um, that the U.S. state isn't functioning, that, that the, the federal government isn't functioning, that, that it creates the conditions for revolution in the next four years. Um, I personally live in a very red district with a lot of people who own guns who would not be very uh, revolutionary in the way I would want them to be. So uh, that's why I call it devil's advocacy. But, you know, I mean, we're, we're assuming democracy is the bulwark here, is the good. But, uh, you know, as you know, some, some revolutionary Marxists um, don't even really think democracy is the answer. I had a sense that Bobby Lee's question would be staying with us, and it certainly is. Thank you, Bruce. Ben, let's, let's hear from you. All right, thank you, guys. Um, tempted to pick up on Bruce's question a little bit, but I will resist um, and actually ask you all to, to comment on... Um, uh, municipalism 
actually, we've talked a little bit about local elections, but most of those have been on state level campaigns. I'm thinking about what's going on, for instance, in Jackson, Mississippi, with Axon Jackson and uh, Patrice Lumumba, but also I'm in Seattle where um, we have an, an open socialist city council person who led the fight for a $15 minimum wage here, um, as well as now seven of nine city council members who um, <clears throat> in response to on the ground protests have uh, committed to defunding the police by 50% um, and are literally in the process of attempting to do that, though it's full of um, uh, potholes, um, <laughs> right? Uh, but I guess like um, when we think about what we mean by democracy, there is a way that the national as well as the state level absorbs almost all the energy um, and we miss some of the things that are going on on the ground in, in more local contexts and in the power of cities in particular. And I know that can be problematic when we think about the relationship between the urban and the rural, but we also have to recognize that cities do play an outsized role, certainly economically, um, and therefore are leverage points. So I, I guess I wonder what y'all think about um, municipalism as a, as a movement. And just to tag on to Ben's, I mean, of course, as we're seeing in places like Portland and Chicago, the, a very acute battle between federal government policies or directives and city government, literally mayors in the streets being tear gassed in Portland and other. So, I mean, certainly I think Ben flagged something very important about the local and the and the city in particular. Great, lots in those two questions to pick up. Medea? Well, I'm a great fan of the municipal strategy. I think that's where we're gonna get the results, whether it's getting this money out of the police and putting it into other uh, real needs, whether it's uh, uh, significant environmental changes that could be models for other cities, um, whether it's participatory budget kind of things, uh, reparations that the city of Asheville just voted on. I mean, that's where we get some, uh, some excitement, uh, some real change that I think then inspires people in other cities uh, to do something similar or even better. Uh, and then on the other hand, I want to take the, the, um, uh, the other question by Bruce and really put it on an international level because um, the U.S. is an imperialist country and what we do in, in affects so much the rest of the world. So if you have this notion that maybe we need a, a Trump because that's going to uh, get the revolutionary uh, forces out in this country, um, think of the, what it's going to do to the international uh, community and those same times. Um, the Trump administration pulled out of the WHO, which is devastating. Um, the Trump administration is pulling out of nuclear treaties and uh, want to do nuclear testing again and leading to a nuclear arms race, which, you know, uh, and, and um, I talked about the pulling out of the deal with Iran, which is uh, totally um, uh, leading us onto a path of another war in the Middle East. Uh, so I think we have to have in mind uh, the destruction that can be caused on the international level when you have somebody like Trump that is so disdainful of the rest of the world and again, not reachable through any kind of movements that we can build up. Yeah, I, I agree entirely with Media. I would just add one thing that in a sense, you could say that the government in this country is already not functioning in the form of its incapacity uh, to deal with the pandemic. It, it has shown its, its total failure. And I think this does provide an entry, perhaps similar to the kind that you were thinking of, Bruce. 
And then uh, to add on to that, Victor, we've seen in other countries where things are really falling apart. Many of the times that is not the most revolutionary time because people are so consumed with getting enough food, with uh, finding a shelter, with taking care of the day-to-day -day needs. Um, it's oftentimes when things are a little better and it's more of the, uh, uh, the um, uh, middle class um, that rises up uh, during times that can be described like the Arab Spring or uh, other examples like that. Very interesting, very interesting. We have uh, at least two more questions uh, from Joe Nevins, and then next we will uh, bring in Tim Sheard, another co-producer of the show. Uh, Joe, you there? Make sure to unmute yourself, Joe, if we can, so we can hear you at least. Joe, are you there? I have your question written out. I can just read it if you're having trouble. Last call. Okay, Joe's having some technical problems, but he had a very interesting question. I'm scrolling up to find it. Um, and it was for you, Victor. Um, um, thank you, he says, to both of you, Medea and Victor, for your great work over many years and for sharing your analysis with us this evening. Assuming that Biden wins, actually, I think this is for both of you. Sorry, I just misread it. Uh, assuming that Biden wins, what do you see as important opportunities or spaces for the left and progressives to engage beyond voting rights legislatively to alter the structural limitations uh, of the US electoral system? Are there particular proposals or initiatives on this front that you see as winnable in the coming years were sufficient mobilization to take place? So I think that's a question about uh, what could be achieved in terms of the electoral system, but perhaps, um, on other issues too. I mean, Victor, you haven't had much of a chance to talk about your work on the elect on the environmental crisis and the need for eco-socialism. So I'd be interested, since Joe can't speak to it, in hearing your thoughts on what could be changed um, about the electoral system, perhaps the electoral college, et cetera, but also on other particular issues. I know, Medea, you've touched on this in terms of foreign policy a bit, but I'd like to hear more. If Biden wins, what could progressives conceivably push through that we otherwise could not? Well, just to start, you know, in terms of the electoral system, uh, the most promising avenue towards abolishing the electoral college, uh, I mean, formally it would require a constitutional amendment, and that's obviously uh, terribly difficult, cumbersome, almost impossible. However, the the system of getting state legislatures uh, to do, to commit themselves uh, that all their electoral votes would go to whichever candidate wins the national popular vote. Uh, that, that uh, as of the latest count, uh, had been approved by states accounting for 195 electoral votes. And they need to get to a threshold of, I think, 271 or something. That's something that doesn't depend on Biden. That depends on state legislatures. However, if there is a big shift of, of direction, and obviously, again, this is something that uh, is likely to be supported by Democrats and not by Republicans. But if that could be put in as a as a uh, as a, as a step towards uh, changing the uh, you, know, you know just bypassing the electoral college, that would be uh, of potential interest. Uh, but um, also, I think more more broadly, in in terms of the election, uh, a national electoral law uh, 
with a guarantee, constitutional, well, not constitutional, but just a legal guarantee, everyone has the right to vote. Uh, the, the, a positive, affirmative, proactive statement of the right to vote, which has, which, as I said, doesn't exist yet. That would be a major thing. Uh, as for the environment, yes, I mean, obviously, th this is a tremendous area of substantive concern. There has to be a terrific mobilization around this. But I think the, the demand has to be for something like the uh, the bringing the all the energy uh, producers into the public sector. I mean, that the uh, that the corporate corporations that dominate the fossil fuels are going to continue exploiting it as long as it it's profitable for them to do it. They have to be taken out. And uh, of course, this is this is a huge uh, project that goes far beyond what Biden himself would advocate. But it's it's definitely in terms of a of a proactive step that should be proposed is one that I would put at the top of the list, along with, you know, a, a, a larger, you know, Green New Deal in a larger sense, but with uh, really with teeth, not just giving incentives to private companies, but actually providing uh, public works that would carry out the kind of green transformation that's necessary uh, in a, uh, at every level of the society. Thank you, Victor. Medea, what do you see as the areas that uh, under Biden, it might be conceivable to push change that is not otherwise. Yeah, it's been interesting to see the areas where there have been working groups uh, where the Biden team has brought in people from the Sanders team. And some of the things that they've come up with have been quite progressive, particularly, for example, around the environmental issues, um, way better than uh, Biden's platform has been in the past. A big fight uh, has been around the Medicare for all issue. And a lot of people are very angry with how bad the democratic platform is, the refusal to uh, understand that during a pandemic, uh, people's uh, eyes are opened up to say, hey, we need a healthcare system, a real system, uh, one that covers everybody. Uh, so I think as things get worth health-wise health here, and when you think of uh, how a vaccine is gonna be dealt with, uh, there's gonna be a lot more momentum for pushing for a Medicare for all system. And um, then I think also around uh, people, um, uh, the, the people's needs that have been highlighted so much with this pandemic, like the, the lack of paid parental leave, um, the uh, things like that, um, uh, there's gonna be more momentum for. And then I would say on the international uh, realm, I already talked about um, the uh, sanctions. I think that um, the Obama administration, the uh, Biden administration could be convinced to soften it um, because of the pandemic. The pandemic might be their excuse to say, all right, we're really tough guys, but uh, we're going to make allowances because of this pandemic and lift a lot of the restrictions on things like food and medicines. I think we could see that happening. There'll be a big fight about the Pentagon budget. Other members of the Democratic Party who were running for president had said that, yes, we should cut the, the Pentagon budget. Joe Biden was never one of those. Uh, there's a big campaign right now that Bernie Sanders was leading, cut the Pentagon budget by 10%. We lost that, but I think there's momentum for that. So those kinds of things. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you, you both remind us that many of the decisions that affect our lives under this capitalist system, this with this military industrial complex and its and the privately owned energy companies are not do not fall you know within the what we generally think of as is the realm of, of public um, public legislation though potentially they could in theory 
right, that democracy could be grown so they could actually rein in and control and even transfer to the public some of what we currently understand as, as privately held uh, means of production. Um, we have at least, we have, uh, Tim has a question and also Ben, I neglected to give Ben, ben his follow-up chance uh, with his earlier question. And I, well, Ben, I know you always have something very sharp to say, so I, I would like to include you. So let's take Tim's question and Ben's uh, reply, and then we'll put out maybe a last call for questions from our live viewers as we, as we bring, this, uh, bring this puppy home. Tim? <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Uh, hi, Victor and Medea. Uh, one of my concerns is how we can convince masses of people uh, to change their attitude toward the environment because they uh, were so wed on a consumer culture and, on, and frankly, a culture of individualism and not caring about the social sphere. And so how do we get people to demand that the, that the uh, power generating companies, for example, switch to 100% renewable, to demand it? And that people give up their cars, as an example, as their gas and diesel. Um, how do we get away from that as long as we have the capitalism uh, having such an effect on, on our culture and on our ideas about individualism? Great, profound question, Tim. Ben, uh, if you could add your reply to that, and then we'll, we'll bring it back to Midi and, and Victor. You're muted, Ben. There we go. Sure. Um, I'm. So I should say my follow-up is more uh, through Bruce's question. I cannot resist uh, an anti-electoralism uh, argument. Um, I'm not, and I'll be doing this uh, not as a devil's advocate, though also not as an accelerationist. Um, so I, I think basically, and I think this actually picks up on some of what Tim is asking too, um, do you see electoralism fundamentally as a harm reduction strategy? Because I'll be honest, from my perspective, it, it has little to no effect towards any sort of meaningful change. Um, at best, you are um, reducing harm, at best. Um, and therefore, the question becomes whether there is a trade-off in harm reduction that represses sort of revolutionary potential, right? Um, <clears throat> and I think that that's a, a real problem because if you, you could make take Bobby Lee's suggestion about Trump's incompetence pushing us to an edge, right? Um, and actually flip it and say, actually Trump's incompetence makes it easier for us to accept a figure like Biden. In fact, it was Biden's entire electoral strategy was to say, I'm not Trump, right? So much to the, to the, to the effect of saying, voting for the policies that you, and you like, that Bernie Sanders in, uh, actually represents, is not viable because of the risk of continuing Trump. So we'll continuously have this back and forth in which a supposedly competent liberal can say, well, we will reduce harm, therefore keep us around. Um, so I guess I, I kind of want to push that um, <clears throat> more revolutionary line and think, yes, we can still vote for harm reduction, but we also need to sort of push outside of the electoral system in really strong ways and not get sucked into it. Um, and, and treat it as what it is, which is harm reduction. Really interesting. I'm glad we got you back in, Ben. Uh, Medea and Victor, a lot, a lot there from Tim on individualism and the cap cultural uh, capitalism that's inside people that needs to be transcended, and Ben on this uh, crucial question. Medea first, and then Victor. Uh, I'm very concerned about the consumerism, and in some ways, uh, for some people, it's heightened by this pandemic when you see how Amazon has just grown 
so tremendously because of this, and it was already a monster and is even a greater one now. Uh, on the other hand, I think there are these possibilities that people see different ways of living. Um, it's, a, a, it's a question whether uh, the young people are gonna to wanna to continue to flock to cities uh, and certainly suburbs are not exciting for them. So uh, coming up with something very different. Uh, I live in, um, when I'm in Florida in a, a community of urban farmers and uh, people live co collectively and um, a lot of them are off the grid and they're getting more and more people flocking to them. So um, there's, there's more movements like that. I'm not saying that's gonna be possible for vast majority of people, uh, but you do have to have some of those experiments that give people uh, alternatives. And in terms of uh, harm reduction, I would agree on the national level, yes, but we've talked about the differences that can happen on, in local elections. And there I see in the city councils um, where you get the uh, moves for a living wage, where you get the, uh, the kind of um, uh, changes in, in people's lives that, that make a real so I would say let's make sure we just distinguish between uh, voting voting for Biden as a harm reduction strategy, uh, but getting involved in local politics to make some real change. Great. Victor? Yeah. Um, in terms of the environment, I, I think this is a huge educational task. Uh, but the, one of the things is just to uh, emphasize in all possible ways the level of the emergency. And I, I think here, uh, again, the role of the alternative media is extremely important and needs that it needs to be amplified also by demonstrations. Certainly we have all the, let's say, actual experience necessary to persuade people of this uh, from the burning forest fires to the terrible floods from hurricanes and there are disasters and droughts and things all over the place. And, and I think that uh, this, in a way, is, uh, it's, it just needs to be transmitted and people have to be made aware of this. And then uh, uh, on the more positive side, um, bring people over by, uh, partly by the kind of example that Medea mentions, but I think also by uh, public policies that uh, will make it less necessary for people to, to depend on cars, uh, for transforming the cities in certain ways. There's a recent book called free public transit, which has experiences of, uh, of different cities around the world. And the, the possibility that, you know, if you actually have a, a free public transit system in place, it can draw people away. There can be a combination of positive inducements with uh, sort of uh, disincentives to continue with a private automobile, like uh, limiting uh, access or uh, charging a lot. So, so you, one has to depend on a combination of, of instruction and inducements and incentives and penalties. It's, it's a complicated thing, but the, the main thing is to have a, a, a tremendous emphasis on the importance of the environmental thing. Uh, as for electoral uh, harm reduction, yes, I mean, that, that's an es essentially uh, another way of saying what I s had in mind when I speak of, of the defensive aspect of elections, but I would say that um, that's not the only aspect and it depends on the particular election. Certainly, uh, voting for Biden is, is, uh, would be in the harm reduction category. But uh, what, I, what I was saying is that the harm reduction is not something to which we should devote a great deal of energy. Uh, what I, the way I look at it is 
that in a way we're, we're taking stock of where we are, what the actual options are available just at the moment that we go into the voting booth and say, well, uh, we, we've accomplished this much, but we haven't accomplished enough to really change the, uh, the configuration of the alternatives. So given the limitations, we have to vote for the so-called lesser evil, but it's, it's, not, it's not a strategic goal. It's something that we do just briefly at the moment of voting uh, in the course of a longer term project, which, uh, which does not accept harm reduction as a sufficient objective. Really interesting. And I mean, I really appreciate having so many voices here who, who are able to make that distinction, right? That we can be pragmatic and strategic, harm reduction, defensive strategy on elections where we haven't really, we, the pick is not what we would choose, while also dreaming big and being honest about the real fundamental changes that we need to make and, and being strategic about that as well. Um, we're going to try to squeeze in two more brief questions, and then uh, we will go back to our two guests and also just ask them to conclude with any overall points they'd like to leave us with, uh, any particular campaigns or links or organizations that they'd like to help us connect to. We try to leave people with something they can literally do at the end of this show uh, on whatever level that may be. So we're going to call on Mark Soderstrom, who's actually one of our guests from our last week's show. Uh, who's back for more, glutton for punishment. Mark. Thank you, Joe. Um, I'm still sort of trying to formulate this in my head, but there is sort of a disturbing way in which we, we consistently begin to refer to the parties as if there's something outside ourselves and separate from our participation. And perhaps we can feel that way at the national level. I don't feel very participatory with Biden. But in reality, it seems like there's more like 435 Democratic parties. You know, every House of Representatives is its own Democratic Party organization. Um, and if you want an environmental active vote, find out who your water district supervisor is, right? I mean, they make major decisions about, about water quality and health and drainage and pollution. Um, but there does seem to me that there's got to be some some other strategies besides be a Democrat or run as a Green. And there have been other alternative approaches even to electoral politics, such as the nonpartisan league that worked as advocacy outside the party structure, but then waited the election um, by manipulating the primaries particularly. Um, and those are things that it seems to me would work at the local and perhaps even the state level. Um, and get us away from this, be a Democrat, sell out, or be a Green and be a spoiler. Um, I hope that makes sense. I, there's a question in there somewhere. I'm sorry. Um, okay, so a call, a call to think more creatively and looking at specific opportunities to, to work the system without falling into its traps here. Uh, on a different note, I think James Wilberforce uh, has, has a question as well. James, could you unmute yourself? Yes, sir. Um, hi, Medea. Hey, hi, comrade. Hi, comrade Wallace. Hi, James. Have you read all those books? Uh, I've, I've at least looked at them. I've read some of them. You probably wrote a few of them, too. Yeah. Um, well, this is great conversation, although, you know, I find myself, I have to say, um, I don't want to spend a lot of time debating and talking about whether to vote for Biden or not. I mean, I think there are going to be a lot of people who are going to spend the next three or four months around and around on that. And I know that's not what you're doing. And I'm glad for that. Um, I, I do want to, as an aside, I, um, 
I was elect, I'm an elected member of the Democratic City Committee of Cambridge. It's, as e it's even easier than getting out of bed in the morning. You just walk to the polling place on election day, ask a few people to write you in, and you're on the Democratic City Committee. Now, what that means is maybe useful to think about, but not for right now, because what I really want to ask about is Israel and Palestine, both of you. I know that you've both been interested in that, and I know especially Medea has done a lot of work on this. I just give us one example, an Arab American friend of mine from Morocco. He's not even from, you know, near Palestine, who is an American citizen. He used to work at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard. For him, and I think for many Arab Americans and for an increasing number of Americans who may not be Arab American, the question of Israel and Palestine and Palestinian rights and human rights has become extremely important. And um, obviously Biden is terrible on that. And so how does maybe, maybe how does that fit into our, our understanding of, of what we're grappling with um, in the context of what people we've all been discussing tonight. And thanks everybody. Thanks James. Uh, maybe Medea, maybe to you first on this uh, and then and then to Victor and then I'll ask you for each for a closing statement, I guess, yeah. Um, sure, on the, um, uh, on what uh, Mark you were bringing up, I feel very eclectic and I often get in trouble with folks on uh, various uh, sides of issues but I'm on the advisory board of the Progressive Democrats of America. I support Greens. I'm an independent. Uh, I um, can vote on one way, you know, local and one way national. Um, so I, I really feel like I don't want to be pigeonholed into a party, um, but I also feel that um, we can we can go in and out of these structures as they fit our needs. Um, the other is uh, around Israel, Palestine, and, and Biden. Uh, Biden is certainly terrible, but um, uh, he's no worse than Trump is. I mean, Trump has just been unbelievable, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, giving the green light for expansion of settlements, giving the green light for annexation, for God's sake. Uh, but, but Biden said he's a great friend of Israel. If it hadn't been a creative, we would have had to create it. Um, there's no... Uh, and he, but the positive thing is that the Democratic Party itself has been changing and the base and the young people in the Democratic Party have been changing. Uh, and the, that's reflected in the polls. So Joe Biden is uh, not a surprise to you all here that he's out of touch um, with his own base. And sooner or later, that's going to have to catch up with him. Uh, if you look at the largest uh, foreign policy lobby group in the United States, APAC, it used to be really a bipartisan group. It's become more and more a Republican lobby group. Uh, and we saw with the, um, the, the presidential candidates for the Democratic uh, nomination, uh, most of them stayed clear of APAC, which was quite remarkable. So uh, sooner or later, a Biden administration uh, would have to start dealing with this issue of should we condition aid to Israel? Because that's a key question that keeps coming up and more and more people um, are supporting that position. 
And I think we would have a chance under a Biden administration. And I, you know, I know because I've been in, in these conversations where you have the uh, very progressive Jewish groups and others um, who are having these discussions with the Biden people, not successfully yet, but at least the discussion is there. And so I would say we'd have more of a chance with Biden than we would with Trump for doing things like conditioning the aid. Most, I'm sure all of us would love to see every single dollar of the 3.8 billion that we give to uh, the Israeli military cut off yesterday. Uh, that ain't gonna happen. So we could get some slight improvements under Biden. Thank you, Medea. And you are of course proof that you can be talking about electoral strategy and direct action on this issue, even in a very high stakes way at the same time. Again, resisting the kind of either or, which I feel like is too often at the left, at least in the social media verse I, I inhabit, get sucked into very unproductive either ors when we really need a, a more creative both and. Oh, Victor, I forgot to just say there's, there is this movement for a new party and I'm part of that. Movement as well. for a new party, all right. We can put that link in the chat box, perhaps in the moments we have left. Victor, um, I'd love to hear you address either or both of these questions, and then we will go back to both Medea and Victor for kind of a closing, a closing uh, comment. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think Medea's given an excellent description of the Israel-Palestine situation. I have nothing to add to that. Um, as far as the Green uh, Party is concerned, uh, I would just uh, re-emphasize what I said before. That I hope that the Green Party gets a bigger audience. They, they've done a, a, they have a tremendous job to overcome every election year getting on the ballot in enough states uh, but they have a good message they have a now they've moved towards an eco-socialist position and i think that uh, they should be part of uh, part of the process of building towards an eventual po independent political force uh, the greens themselves are not enough to constitute that force but there has to be something outside the democrats uh, that's present and that even not only uh, does good educational work uh, in its own terms, but also forces any Democrat uh, candidate uh, to think not only of whether uh, th they might uh, lose something to, to the Republicans, but also whether they might lose support from people who are part of their base. I mean, because the, the Greens appeal to the constituencies that are the base of the Democratic Party. And if they can make a stronger case uh, not only will it build their own organization, but it could also have an effect in making Democrat candidates more progressive. Really interesting. Yeah, the idea that an alternative party formation could be a center of gravity, right, that, that, that pulls in and, and exerts pressure even within the Democratic Party. I'd like to just ask you both to maybe offer, you, you've offered so much, so I'm not going to ask you to give a big speech here, but is there, are there some final words uh, a final phrase, a final nod, uh, a plug, uh, something you're, you're doing you want to let people know about or that words you just like to leave folks with on this, uh, on this uh, Thursday evening? Which one do you want to go first? Why don't you go first since we just heard from Victor Media. Okay. Um, I want to leave with a campaign I'm working on that has been so much fun and so uplifting. Uh, and that is a campaign to award the Nobel Peace Prize to the Cuban doctors. And you can find it on cubannobel.org. It's a fantastic campaign because 
it educates people and inspires people about what you could do, what a small country with such limited resources is able to do now, sending doctors to 37 countries to fight coronavirus. And then it also shows you how evil the evil empire is because the United States is trying to sabotage that program, calls these doctors modern day slaves, calls the, calls the program human trafficking, and there's a bill in Congress now to sanction countries that accept the help from these Cuban doctors. So go to cubanobel.org, please sign the petition and help us to spread the word. Oh, Maria, that is great to learn about. Thank you so much for sharing that. And we have the link in the chat box. We'll share it on our Facebook page. And maybe we'll ask you or someone from that campaign to join us in a few weeks. We're planning to get to a show on international comparisons in terms of the response to COVID. And we would really love to have the Cuban response nationally and internationally involved in that conversation. Thank you so much. Victor? Well, first of all, I want to say I thoroughly support Medea's uh, plea for support to the Cubans. That's a, that's a great program and I, and I think it really deserves a lot of support. Um, in terms of things, uh, one, uh, one big project that's not widely known, but very important, is the newspaper called the San Francisco Bayview, which is a, it, its subtitle is a national black newspaper, but its special constituency really is prisoners and people who support prisoners. But it deals with a wide range of issues. It, it comes out both on the web and in print, very importantly, uh, to, in order to be accessible to prisoners. And so they're trying to uh, bring about an editorial transition. They've been run on a volunteer basis up to now, but they need to consolidate themselves. So that's a big campaign that they've launched and, and, that, and that needs support. So SF Bayview, I think is the uh, website, sfbayview.com. And then apart from that, uh, I want to thank Joe, uh, especially not only for organizing this, but for uh, promoting my books. And I'd like to plug my books and just uh, mention that uh, any, uh, anyone who would like to have me uh, address a, a group uh, about any of the subjects of my three books, and you can find out about them at my website, victorwallace.com, uh, I'd be glad to do that. So thanks again. Thank you, Victor. Thank you, Medea. I want to point out, I, I reviewed Victor's book in a little uh, essay called uh, Two Books. This is before his third one came out. Two Books uh, for a World on Fire or Deep Reflections for a World on Fire. And who published that? San Francisco Bay View, mm. right? A, a newspaper actually read by many, you know, many, many prisoners. And I was just doing a little Googling as you were talking, Victor. Uh, I don't quite have the precise answer to this question, but if prisoners could vote and you consider them a state, they'd be, uh, you know, they, they certainly wouldn't be the smallest state in the union. They'd be more populated than Maine, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, again, I think it's, it's, it's worth maybe finishing a conversation about voting rights and the importance of struggling for what's left of our electoral democracy. It's maybe appropriate to remember that there are, again, as we started this conversation with many people left outside of, of those voting rights right now, incarcerated, formerly incarcerated, undocumented workers, no matter how long they've been here, people who live in parts of the, U the greater United States, as it's recently been termed in the empire, whose you know, destinies are, are affected by 
the U.S. government in so many ways who have no vote in the presidential election, as well as the many, literally over 100 countries where the United States has bases or has waged wars in recent times who are directly affected by the decisions this government makes. I wonder what the results of the election would be if all those people could vote. Right on. Welcome here. I mean, so just thank you all for being here, especially to Victor and Medea and everyone who offered such thoughtful comments and everyone who's been watching and has been supporting this project, which is a testament to the need to build alternative media, alternative networks, firmly committed to a transformative vision, while also engaging with what's being done on all, on all fronts we can touch. I want to invite you to next week's, our 18th show, next week, Shelter and Solidarity, uh, this weekly project. We're gonna take it the week off because it's the day after my birthday, but we decided not to in part because we got two terrific speakers who will be joining us. We have the 2020 Pulitzer Prize winning author, Greg Grandin, author of The End of the Myth, From the, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, a book I could not recommend more highly. Greg Grandin will be joining us with Avi Chomsky, also author of many or several very important books, including Undocumented and They Take Our Jobs and 20 Other Myths About Immigration. That will be next week, Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard. As usual, we hope you will join us, invite your friends, join the conversation, and get involved with helping to build this project. We really can only reach the audience that we build. We don't have the magic of money and corporate influence to build shelter and solidarity. Shelter and Solidarity, however, does have the, the uh, support of its sponsors, Hardball Press, which publishes particularly working class stories, uh, laborpress.org, which publishes working class journalism, Socialism and Democracy, the journal that, that uh, Victor Wallace himself has been stewarding for so long and that several of, of us work on as well, Socialism and Democracy, that's sdonline.org. And last but not least, Encuentro Cinco, a long-standing, decades-old hub of organizing, progressive and radical organizing in the heart of downtown Boston. I want to thank my producers, Linda Liu, Seren Mudliar, uh, Tim Sheard, Kira Mudliar, and all the others who have helped to put this show on. Uh, we, uh, we welcome you to hang around after the show if you'd like to debrief. We're democratic like that. We love to hear your feedback. Otherwise, see you next week.